0: The following podcast is sponsored by the new Hood College Gear Shop. The Gear Shop replaces the old Hood Bookstore. Most of us remember the bookstore as just a place where we bought or rented books. Well, that's not the case anymore. The Hood College Gear Shop is a great place to buy all kinds of things. Need some Hood brand merch? You'll find hoodies and t-shirts, hats and scarves, sweats, socks mugs and cups, they even have hood branded blankets. Low on shampoo or soap, they have you covered. Bad breath before class, buy some gum or Tic Tacs. Need a pen, highlighter or notebook? The gear shop has ton. Does your roommate have a dog? Buy them a hood college leash or collar. Need some Advil or Tums? The gear shop has your back. Need a last minute birthday gift for your best friend? you'll find plenty of options. What I'm saying is, the Hood College Gear Shop has you covered for all of your gift, school, snack, and blazer-branded clothing needs. So, the next time you're in WIT, stop in and browse around. Mention my name, Jordan Costley, and the name of this podcast, Minority Minds, and receive 10% off your purchase of any Hood-branded merchandise, but, Take a listen to the show first. Minority, minority, minority minds. Minority, minority, minority minds. Matter. Hello, it's your host with the most, Jordan Costley, and welcome to Minority Minds. This podcast aims to discuss the minority experience for Hood College students and learn important facts regarding to the history of minoritized groups. Wherever you may be, enjoy the program, and stay tuned for my upcoming podcast. Hello, hello! It's your host, with the most, Jordan Cosley, and welcome to the fifth episode of Minority Minds. Wow, how crazy is that? Today, we are going to discuss braved persons. So the trivia question from last episode was who is Megan Pippus Peace? Megan Pippus Peace, spelled M E G A N P I P H U S P E A C E, is the first black woman puppeteer on Sesame Street in its over 50 year history. Megan started her journey when she was only 10 years old through watching VHS tapes. And she's actually won two Emmy Awards for Best Composition and Best Children's Short from a TV musical series that she worked on in 2019 in collaboration with the University of Cincinnati. Megan plays Gabrielle, a six-year-old black girl Muppet on Sesame Street. I frankly think this is just plain awesome. And her name deserves to be heard, and her hard work should be acknowledged. So, Megan Pippis-Peace, I see you, and I want to lift up your name for others to learn about and be inspired. So, before we actually get started with the topic of bereaved persons, I want to reveal the trivia question for next episode for you to brainstorm about. So, in what culture do families come together and have an elaborate... 13 day ritual upon a family member passing away so once again the trivia question is in what culture do families come together and have an elaborate 13 day ritual upon a family member passing away so that being said we are going to get rolling on our topic so I'm actually not going to define it I usually do that in my episodes because that's actually one of my questions for my guests I will provide different statistics after the discussion we have. And this podcast is actually going to be a little different than others because my guests are actually joining me via phone. So the audio will be a little different. So I'm actually going to tune them in now. And if they wanted to, of course, like every other person that comes to my podcast, they of course have the choice to either be anonymous or reveal their names. So I'm going to ask these two individuals if they wanted to say their names that now is the time.
1: Of course, um, my name is Anna and I am a thanatologist and I am Margaret and I'm also a thanatologist. Awesome. Thank you so much. This conversation is going to be very much death dying and grief related. If that subject matter is uncomfortable for anyone who is a listener, please know that you do not need to continue. However, there are supports and services available likely within your community to help you process any experience that has led to this discomfort, or if you are a bereaved person looking for support there are many resources out there available to you. Awesome.
0: Thank you both so much for your time. I'm actually so excited to talk about this topic with you all today. We actually previously met and had our own conversation before this just to talk about what kind of questions we wanted to review. And I learned so much and I am so excited to share this with my listeners to learn from the both of you. So I'm, I'm very excited. So rolling with our very first question, what is a bereaved person? Anna, I'm going to start with you.
1: Sure. Um, so we can actually define a bereaved person as someone experiencing a grief trajectory not only related to death, but also a substantial or notable loss in their life. A lot of the time we consider bereavement or grief to be directly parallel to dealing with a dying or someone who has already become deceased. However, there are a myriad of losses that we experience in our lives that can also product us into a lot of grief experience reactions and behaviors.
2: I think Anna summarized it beautifully. I guess I could give some examples. We can experience grief with the loss of a relationship, whether that is negative, like it was in a healthy relationship, even the loss of a positive relationship. We can still grieve loss of job, housing, home changes. A lot of times we grieve changes from what our normal routine or life is.
0: Thank you for those examples as well, because I think something that's really interesting is, that the experience can be related to a person and it can be connected to something like a job or housing and something that I had learned through just a little bit of research outside of our conversation is that 3,464,231 deaths have occurred in the United States and our death rate currently is one thousand. 43.8 43.8 deaths per 100,000 persons in the entire population. I thought that was something really interesting to bring up because something that I think that is maybe fearful for individuals and anybody talking about death is that it sometimes seems a, real, a little too real. And that it can be very personal to us and loss in general can be a very scary concept to grasp and often isn't spoken about, but it doesn't mean that it's not important. So I think it's important to acknowledge how often this is occurring because then it it, it brings a little bit of a more of a reality to the prevalence of this.
1: Oh, totally. And you know, to add to that, Jordan, something not to sound morose or morbid, but a fact of life is that as quickly as we are born, we're all going to die. But that doesn't mean the duration of that period of time should not include living. And I, I think that celebrating life and living it is also integral to someone's grief journey or their grief trajectory. It's not all something that might be doom and gloom. There are also high points, and and I really appreciate that you mentioned those statistics because it does show that whether or not we're aware of it, life and death are happening all around all of us.
0: Yes. Margaret, I think you actually started touching on it, so um, if you repeat yourself, I'm sorry. Can you tell me a little bit more in depth about who's impacted by
2: this? Anybody and everybody is impacted by grief, and... Just listening to your statistics, I also thought of, I think you touched on like communal grief, community grief, like COVID brought not only death grief, but also brought like the pandemic, like the grief of just all of that. We turn on the news and we are society grieving <clears throat> with all the violence that is impacting our daily life. So yeah, anybody can be bereaved and that's part of the problem, I think in western cultures we don't know how to identify a bereaved person we just might judge them and be like oh i don't know what's wrong with jordan today she seems really short and cold or anna i don't know why she always wears black or whatever it is and we don't take that time to check in to see how people are experiencing the world or if they have like a very personal loss that they're experiencing
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Anna, is there anything else that you wanted to add regarding who's impacted by this?
2: Yeah, I I think
1: Margaret really captured in her statement that everyone is affected by grief because at some point, Everyone on this earth will experience a loss, and in some way, whether it's emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, biologically, they will have a reaction to it. Um, and it is really important to understand what some of those identifiers might be.
0: So, can one of you define what is thanatology? Anna, what are your thoughts well, on I, what thanatology is? Or uh, Margaret, sorry. <laughs>
1: um, I suppose um, I'll go first. I think thanatology is is really an interesting area of study in general. It's a baby science, and what that means is it's about 100 years old. So, comparatively speaking to a lot of other sciences in existence, um, you know, the are new. We're a new group of people. Um, Oftentimes, you are going to find those in the study who are more death and change positive. Um, However, it's a combination of the study of scientific, biologic, psychological, emotional, and physical Physiological responses to grief, death, dying, and loss. So it, it's very much a multifaceted arena that we're in. Yeah, thank
0: you for that, Margaret. Anything else? Um, I guess
2: I could just add that, like, you're gonna find funerallgists, and a lot of times they're in like the funeral industry. Um, a lot of clergy or pastors or people that work um, in the medical field will be thanatologists as well as some counselors and therapists. So um, but they're mainly predominantly currently in like the death and dying industry. Well,
0: I want to thank you for telling us about the different areas that thanontology can be presented, whether it's in clergy, medical and in funeral settings, in therapy settings, because I think it's also really important. To talk about the presence of it because some people might not even know what Thanontology is. And so I was curious myself of how present this is being offered in varying colleges. So there are apparently only two colleges that offer thanatology on an undergraduate and associate degree level and those were CUNY Brooklyn College and Hudson Valley Community College. I wonder if this is actually accurate and if and if it is, I think the numbers are low due to people's lack of Interest of wanting to discuss death, maybe not, I don't think interest is the right word, but the fear of having this conversation with other people may be why there is a lack of of offerings in varying colleges about that. So do you, think, do you think that's true that there's only two colleges that offer it?
1: Um, so I actually am close to saying I know that for a fact. Um, Margaret and I actually met through the graduate program at the university we both selected. And at graduate level, there are two universities that I'm aware of in the United States that offer thanatological studies. Um, so I don't find that surprising at all. However, Mortuary schools um, and any kind of education or degree in mortuary science, counseling, sometimes social work, depending on where the service is centered, include a brief portion related more to developmental perspectives in than- thanatology, um, as well as um, some biological information if it's more in that mortuary science or funeral director field. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Margaret? anything do you think that's yeah oh yeah
2: i i agree with anna it's not very big it's not very known yet and um in the counseling field um i that's what i have my graduate degree and my master's and we have like a grief class but nothing like dentology related so it really is missing from like the greater context of our communities and our culture here in the united states
0: so how Do microaggressions play a part in death culture, Margaret?
2: So microaggressions really play a part because there is this misunderstanding of the grief and death experience. And like you touched on earlier, Jordan, like talking about death is still taboo, it's avoided. And so oftentimes people are judged, whether that is outwardly, um, oftentimes people grieving, are not allowed to engage like in their cultural religious funeral rites due to work obligations oftentimes people it can be looks it can be common cuz people don't understand the cultural context or religious context like there are some death rites where people shave their head they don't shower for a week some people with their clothes they can't engage in life celebrations for a year if not longer some cultures loudly cry even hit themselves others are very stoic and silent other cultures you have to wear certain colors or you can't wear certain colors until those microaggressions come up when others don't understand that and then they alienate the people who are already bereaved and then another microaggression occurs like in the death of like a miscarriage people often say well they weren't born yet oh it's fine they weren't really alive." think of an old age where we just talk about the good life they lived and that In my experience, I've witnessed people that had very abusive parents or grandparents who died and the microaggression of going to the funeral and everyone saying, oh, they were such a wonderful person. They were so great and that alienation for their victims.
0: I appreciate you talking about that everybody's experience with death in different cultures is often not recognized in the workplace. It's not even recognized within, you know, some of their communities of understanding why they may be presented themselves in a different way than on the usual on a usual basis because of what they practice within their own culture and that other people may be judgmental and outwardly microaggressing these individuals due to their lack of knowledge of these p- persons' experiences and aren't taking the time to ask them in an appropriate way what they're going through so that they can be have cultural competency. Anna, anything else about how microaggressions play into death culture?
1: Um, so I do think that there are a lot of cultural subgroups in, in Western society for intents and purposes of this conversation, I would say that United States is, is what I'm referring to as Western society. And part of that is this intense focus on stoicism um, that seems to have appeared over the past few centuries and just landed on most of us. Um, I think that that makes it very difficult, as Margaret said, the expectations of others related to persons who are going through a grief experience or identifying as bereaved can place a lot of undue stress as well as exhibit microaggressions that they may not even be aware of um, that the bereaved person is picking up on. So some of it is conscious behavior. Some of it is completely subconscious and we don't know we're expressing it. Um, One thing I do want to mention as well is microaggressions aren't only limited to religion or Culture. we also have to look at um, communities throughout our society. So one that comes to mind immediately is LGBTQ+. Um, If anyone is an American Horror Story fan, I know Margaret and I both are, um, this past season metaphorically spoke to the AIDS crisis of the 1980s and how a complete group of persons was marginalized because of a disease that impacted their community that they had nothing to do with other than becoming sick and suffering. So not only do you have this huge amount of marginalization, you have people suffering and dying and not experiencing what would be identified as a good death, um, which is something that I would describe as having love and care around you and being treated like a human being.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate you as a um, American Horror Story fan, I appreciate that. And I think it's a good point of that microaggressions can be unconscious and um, subconscious and conscious in how we speak upon death or how people are have died or are dying. So why does language matter when discussing death?
1: I think that if everyone could go back to a time that was incredibly trying for them on a personal level, whether it had to do with death or change or anything else, and think about the person around you who told you what to do, how to behave, and the feelings that you should have. Think about, hopefully, someone around you who approached you and simply asked, what can I do to help you? Language is better. Of course, it's going to be the one concerned with how they can provide care and help to the person going through the experience. And that really is the type of language that we should be hearing. In any point of our lives, I know I don't want to be told how to act or look or talk or feel. Those are my own personal beliefs that I feel I should be able to express. When you're bereaved, those notions are incredibly amplified. So someone attempting to suggest behavioral patterns or ideas, they may be doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do. However, what the best thing to do when encountering a bereaved person or someone dealing with loss is ask what the best support looks like for them. And then try to provide it or connect them to tools or organizations or groups that are able to provide that.
0: Thank you for that. I want to focus on the point of that just because you were taught one way to grieve does not mean that you should project that type of grievement or how you grieved on somebody else. Because that might not be their experience and that everybody grieves in a different way. And instead of trying to project how you think someone should grieve, just asking them how they're doing. Asking them, how can I best support you? I I want to really focus on the point of what you're saying is ask them how they can support you. Ask what kind of resources would be helpful for you in this time of grievement for you. I really appreciate that point. Margaret, anything else about
2: why language is important when discussing death? I will just piggyback on that um, when you're dealing with a bereaved person, letting them know you're here for them. You're not going to judge them, right? I'm here for you. Just saying that. Sometimes in our grief, we don't know what supports we need. And so just knowing that you have somebody there that's coming from a non judgmental place, you can just say, you know, I'm here for you validate what you're feeling is normal grief is very isolating we feel all these complex deep emotions and so just yeah what you're going through is normal and then for people and I don't know if Anna wants to add to this that when somebody's bereaved other people like want to share their stories about their bereavement please ask the person can I share with you my story is now a good time? Because there's a time and place for that, and it's not always the right time with the briefed person. So allowing them to say, yes, share with me your story, or no, now is not a good time. Later, you can share your story with me.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And really to expand that, um, there are situations that each individual will find themselves in if you are – connected to or trying to communicate with someone who is experiencing grief or bereaved and you don't know what to say, that's okay. You can tell them that. You can say, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to say. I'm not sure what to do. What does that look like for you? What can I do that will help you? And that's absolutely okay. It's better to say something than nothing at all, because going back to microaggressions, it could simply be because someone doesn't know what to say or how to help, so they choose to do nothing, which can come off very much as a microaggression, although it may not be the intention.
0: Yeah, thank you both for your responses and expanding on why language is important, and I wanted to talk about person-first language which is a way of speaking or writing that puts the person before a diagnosis, a condition, or disability. It describes what a person has, not who a person is, that it tends to avoid marginalization, dehumanization, or labels that may reduce a person's humanity, uniqueness, or worth. But person-first language is also extremely important when talking about death, especially when speaking on how someone may be grieving, on how someone may have even died or what kind of death they had. And this is especially important when speaking about suicide. When using person-first language, it's best to use statements like they completed suicide rather than saying committed suicide or saying person who died by suicide instead of saying something like they killed themselves language is super important that's why i wanted to ask this question because it is very important regardless of how the person died what they died from how you're speaking to them when you know that they've experienced a loss in their family in their personal life however they've lost language is really crucial and being able to effectively let people see that You're there for them and that you're thankful that they feel comfortable. And I liked Margaret's point of, you know, if you have a a grief story that may relate to that person, asking them first, May I share this experience with you? And being comfortable with them telling you no. That it's okay for them to say no because their grief might need to settle in a little bit before being able to hear from somebody, else, somebody else's experience of what happened to them in order for them to feel comfortable with hearing it because they might just need a little more time. And that they will appreciate you saying, I'm here for you. I see that you're going through something and I want you to know that I'm here for you. And then I have an experience that may be helpful to you. But if the time is not right now, I'm going to respect that. So thank you both. All right, moving right along to our next question. Are there any federal or state laws or even acts that are put in place to assist individuals who
2: are experienced
0: bereavement?
2: Margaret? Um, Anna probably knows more on this. I'll just touch on what I currently know. Currently, the U.S. Department of Labor does not require for employers to allow um, employees any bereavement time or for that time to be paid. So there, um, I've heard lots of horror stories where people have lost a family member and their employers have had said things like, well, you're going to come to work tomorrow, right? And just nothing. Um, I'm in Colorado, and I know in Colorado, it is along the same lines as... The Department of Labor, so it you might have an employer. I used to work for a Jewish nonprofit, and so I got seven days of bereavement time. That is not common, and then usually that only exists for immediate family, parents, siblings. So if you lose a grandparent, you might not get bereavement time. I'm a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, and so again, it does not allow for cultural or religious families, right? So if you have a loss of a community member you're not going to get any bereavement time for that.
0: Thank you. Anna?
1: And, and with that, um, Margaret's absolutely right. Um, there, there is no kind of federal regulation related to bereavement leave. Um, some agencies state effectively that employees may use a nominal amount of vacation or uh, organizationally issued bereavement time or kind of whatever that case is. And I think it makes it really difficult because the landscape of legal action becomes quite muddied when there is not necessarily any federal protection related to rituals and traditions of an individual's culture or religion as it relates to death and bereavement. The other thing that I want to mention is that I often (laughs) say we have sex education Usually where I'm located, it starts, I think, in fifth grade, Um, but we don't have any deaf education in the schools. And interestingly enough, a lot of adolescents prior to their physical changes may have had a family member who died while they were in elementary school or younger, and I think it's really important for our school systems, in addition to the many other things that they need to be looking at and adjusting. To really look at death education and what can be provided to children, adolescents, and young adults, and even collegiate age young persons to better educate them and prepare them for the ultimate end to the life cycle, which is the experience of death.
0: Yeah, thank you. I I actually, that actually is a really good point that we talk about sex education from fifth grade to high school and sometimes even in college settings, but we are not speaking upon death and what death looks like and the importance of learning about death and grievement in our schooling. So what are some resources that are available to help persons that are experiencing this, Anna?
1: Yes, so there are. There are a lot of resources available, Um, oftentimes depending on their regulatory compliance and and the system setup, a lot of local hospices offer bereavement care and services not only to uh, persons who were relatives of someone who passed away in hospice, they also offer them to anyone in the area experiencing a grief journey or going through bereavement, um, depending on what the individual or group feels is the best support for them. Many religious organizations also provide grief support services. Um, There are a lot of different programs through medical institutions as well. And um, that's really kind of the tip of the iceberg. There are support groups online. It really depends on what the grief trajectory and the comfort level looks like for that bereaved person or group. Of course, there are private counseling practices as well, Um, and some counselors do specialize in grief and all of the emotions and processes that that
2: would entail.
0: Thank you. Margaret, any other resources that you may know of that are
2: available to help these persons with these experiences? Yeah, just to... um, piggyback off of what Anna said, checking locally what services are available in your area. I would also say find a therapist who is familiar with grief work, who's comfortable with talking about death. Also check with them about their cultural competency, their religious competency. um, If you have any concerns about um, how they can approach or hold space for grief in those spaces, and with that, there's a few um, therapeutic websites. One that I love is Inclusive Therapists, and they are geared towards marginalized communities. So many of their therapists are people from marginalized communities. So it makes it a lot easier to find someone who can share your same views and experiences. There's Therapy Den, which is very LGBTQIA friendly. And then there's a couple others there's therapy for black girls therapy for black men therapy for latinx latinx therapy asian mental health collective asians for mental health americans Um, as far as our indigenous population that really is going to be tribal and locally based and so find there's not really any like one place like the places that i just named for people to go
0: Thank you. I appreciate all the resources that you have, you both have given to my listeners and to me because I think there is a lot of isolation in knowing your resources, period. I think a lot of people don't know the resources that are available to them on a continuum of things, but I think specifically relating to grief and death, a lot of people don't understand or know some of the resources that are available to them. So I thank you both for giving our listeners some different resources that are available. And moving on to our last question, what do you think has been the biggest takeaway of your studies thus far? Margaret, I'll start with you.
2: Oh, my biggest takeaway from my studies, first of all, the lack of bereavement support that we just have. Um, in our society and the need for the normalization of death like Anna was speaking of earlier. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. So how do we start to normalize and have conversations about death even in the certificate? Like I said, I'm a counselor. I have colleagues that were like, no, I don't want to talk to you about death, which I thought was very interesting, including friends. Like um, people, we just shy away from it. Like we're afraid to talk about it. And in these empowered death conversations that we get to share about our lives, how do we also have the hard ones like do not resuscitate um, orders, wills, advanced directives? These are important things that we need to have in place in our life so we can continue to live life. And again, as Anna had mentioned earlier, have a good death so that we can be empowered and have choice in our death. And then lastly, I just was honored by just all the beautiful cultural and religious experiences of death and dying and believement that I got to learn about in this program. And I'm really excited to continue to learn about that to bring that normalcy and celebration of life and death to everybody in our community.
0: That's awesome. What about you, Anna? What's the biggest takeaway that you've had from your studies?
2: So actually, I
1: I have to preface my takeaway with uh, a little bit of a personal story. I actually, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, was a caregiver for a family member for quite a long time. And when they died, it was very difficult for me. And (laughs) during COVID, of course, like many other people, I I was locked down working from home and had a lot of time to think and process my grief and emotions. And uh, I realized you know what, we're all in this together. And if I can help at least one person not go through the experience I went through in my grief journey, then my life's work will be complete. And that was something that I concluded before I got into the program. I didn't realize how visceral going through this education, I I really would venture to say was for most of us in this program, but in the best way possible. And my biggest takeaway is, especially anyone out there who's listening, if you are going through something that has caused you grief, if you are a bereaved person, you are not alone. There are people out there who care about you and want to help you, and you deserve that. You do not deserve to be at home feeling miserable feeling like you deserve nothing but to feel sad or angry, frustrated, depressed, whatever those emotions are. There are people out there that want to support and help you and care about you. And that is what you deserve.
0: Thank you. Thank you both. And once again, you are deserving of being heard. You are deserving of knowing that, like Anna said, that there are people who are out there who want to support you and want to hear you and that you deserve every feeling that you have during griefment is valid and should be validated by others and that no one can take those feelings away from you and that there are so many people out there that you may not have met yet that are feeling similar things to you and want to know that you're feeling this way so thank you both so much for your time is there anything else that you would like to say before we end this episode
1: well, Thank you for having us, Jordan, and a big thank you to all of your listeners for taking the time. Hopefully, the conversation has helped you individually or given you ideas of ways to help someone else, and thank you again so much. No problem.
2: Margaret, I think. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, and like Anna said, thank you to your listeners, and hopefully provided some support that some people needed or even bring board to start having some conversations Mm -hmm. thank you well how about
0: that how's your mind feeling after that discussion isn't it so interesting how much we can learn in a small time I hope you come back and join me on my next podcast for minority minds I'm your host with the most Jordan Cosley and be kind to your mind Minority, minority, minority
2: minds. Minority, minority, minority minds.